Well, good morning, friends. I'm Pastor Brandon. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Acts 17 as we continue our, our short series in the month of January on the centrality of Scripture in the life of the church. If you're new to Stonebridge, our, our typical rhythm is to work through books of the Bible. Uh, and so we'll be back into the Gospel of John in February. But for January, we've been asking ourselves, why in the world do we spend so much time in this book? Like, What are we called to believe about it? How do we uh, approach it? Why is it so central to the life and faith of God's people? Uh, so far, we've considered the inspiration of Scripture, the fact that this is God's very word, and we've considered the reliability of Scripture, that it is trustworthy and truthful in all that it says. Uh, this morning, we want to think about the authority of Scripture, uh, that this is a word from God under His authority. Well, when Martin Luther uh, posted his famous 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, on uh, October 31st of 1517, he was not actually trying to start a new church. He was simply trying to start a conversation, the beginning of the, the Protestant Reformation. He was trying to start a conversation because he was troubled by what, uh, what he saw as abuses in the Roman Catholic system of indulgences and relics. People were being offered the forgiveness of sins and, and freedom from what, what Catholics call purgatory, not because they'd done really anything. There was no life change. There was no change in behavior or heart, but simply by going through a religious motion. That was it. Or, or even worse, by putting money, uh, giving money to the church. Luther saw this as a scandal, as, as giving a bad name to the church. As one historian describes it, Luther sought to defend the Pope and indulgences from the bad name that these abuses would give them. In the 95 Theses, Luther was being a good Catholic. But within four years, what began as a debate uh, about the proper use of indulgences quickly became a battle over the very operating system of the church one that would ultimately change the, the face of Christianity, not just in the West, but, but globally. And underneath all of that, uh, all of the debates of the Protestant Reformation, underneath all of that was a question, does the church have authority over the Bible, or does the Bible have authority over the church? That question was underneath every debate associated with the Reformation. And Luther's answer, and the answer of, of Protestants ever since, has been that the Bible, as God's word, has authority over the church. Whatever message that the church teaches must come from the Bible. And if, if there's anything that a church or a Christian is, is teaching or believing that doesn't accord to the scriptures, then, then we're the ones that need to change, not the other way around. The Bible gets the last say. It is our supreme authority over uh, the life of, and faith of the church because it is God's very word. That was what Luther advocated in that debate. The Catholic Church had, had long seen things differently. 
authority was, was something that Jesus had invested in his apostles, uh, mainly Peter. And then it was passed down through this unbroken line of succession uh, that centralized in the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. And so the Bible was God's word, but so was the tradition, uh, to the point that the tradition could actually create new doctrines and new rituals that weren't in the scriptures, and, and the tradition told you how to interpret the scripture so that functionally speaking, the church had authority over the Bible. That was the, the Catholic position. And of course, this is obviously part of a, of a large conversation that's been going on for centuries. And as a Protestant church, it shouldn't surprise anybody where we land on that question, that the Bible has authority over the church. But as we're going to see in, uh, in Acts 17 this morning, there is really good reason to think that Luther got it right. That, that this is not, we don't put the Bible above the church just because that's our tradition or heritage, but because that's what Scripture itself teaches. That because it is God's very word, this book has authority over God's people. It is the source and the standard of all true knowledge of God. So it's where we go to learn who God truly is. It's the source. But it's also that against which we measure all claims about God. It is the standard of our knowledge of God, which means that our doctrines, our traditions, they must come from Scripture. They must conform to Scripture, not the other way around. We don't, uh, we don't correct the Bible. The Bible corrects us, right? Which also means that to obey God is to obey the scriptures. And to disregard or disobey the scriptures is to disregard and disobey God. That's, this book, the Bible, is an authoritative word. It's an authoritative word. And we see that in Acts 17 uh, in both the pattern of Paul's ministry, his, his preaching ministry, and in the nobility of some of his listeners. And so go ahead and, and look with me at Acts 17 this morning. Uh, the book of Acts was written by Luke, uh, so it's basically volume two of Luke's uh, history that he was writing first of, of the life and, and ministry of Jesus, and then volume two is essentially how the gospel spread through the known world through the spirit-empowered witness of the church. And a big part of that spread was the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, in Acts 17 here, in our, our passage, we, we find Paul in the middle of his second missionary journey. So back in chapter 13, uh, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church in Antioch and sent out to go preach the gospel. And, and they did, and they saw people trust Christ, and they started churches. In chapter 16, they, they send them out again, only this time Paul goes with Silas and uh, first they visit some of the different churches that they'd already started. And then the rest of chapter 16, he spends in Philippi, where he, he does a, a little beach ministry down on the, the river shore with Lydia, and then ends up doing a little prison ministry as he gets arrested and witnesses to the Philippian jailer. Uh, but by the time you get to Acts 17, he, they've been released from prison, and, and now they've made their way first to Thessalonica in verses 1 to 9. And then to Berea, 
which was 50 miles southwest of there in verses 10 to 15. And when we read these two stories of Paul's ministry, first in in Thessalonica and then in Berea, when you read those side by side, we see a whole lot of similarities and one really important difference. And and so I want to start with the similarities that, that really revolve around Paul's pattern of preaching the scriptures. These two stories just unfold in a parallel fashion. Uh, They both begin with Paul going to the local synagogue, verses 1 and 10, and then preaching about Jesus from the Hebrew scriptures, from what we call the Old Testament, verses 2 and 3, and then 10 and 11. And we see two kinds of responses to his preaching. Some believe his message and trust Christ, verses 4 and 12, while others get angry and jealous and make trouble for Paul in verses 5 to 9 and and then 13, with the result that Paul has to leave town pretty quickly, verse 10 and verses 14 and and 15. So they they just track side by side, very similar. And, And what's notable here as it relates to this broader question of the Bible's authority is what we learn from Paul's pattern of ministry, what he does everywhere he goes to make Christ known. So if you look again at verses two to three, and Paul went into the synagogue as was his custom. This is what he does. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, the Messiah. Now, it's not exactly um, surprising to see Paul preaching Jesus. We kind of expect apostles to preach Jesus, right? To, to proclaim who he is and what he's done everywhere they go. That he is the long-awaited king of Israel, the promised savior and Messiah who, who died on the cross for our sins, who rose from the grave on the third day to give new life to everyone who believes. You expect Paul to preach that message. The part that we don't often stop and think about here is that that Paul wasn't just telling others about Jesus by declaring the events that are recorded in the gospel, or even by just recounting his own personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was reasoning with them about Jesus from the scriptures, specifically. In this case, what we call the Old Testament. So so think about that for a moment. For Paul, it wasn't enough to just tell the true story of Jesus. Not unless he anchored it in the Old Testament scriptures that are God's word. Why would he feel the need to do that? Why not just tell the story of his life and and, and death and miracles and all those things? Why did he feel the need to preach that message of Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures? Well, some suggest... It's because of who he was preaching to. He was preaching to the Jews for whom the Old Testament had authority, and he was just trying to do a good job connecting with his audience. 
Like, because it, that was a book that mattered to them, Paul was using that book. But if he, you know, as the theory goes, if he had been preaching to Muslims, if they existed at the time, he would have used the Koran. Or, or if he was preaching to Gen Zers today, he would use Instagram and Snapchat. And so, so the Old Testament is just a it's, a, it's a means of communication. It was a tool to connect with his audience. That's, that's one theory, one answer to that question. And of course, there's no doubt, Paul was a master at connecting to his audience. Uh, that's not debatable. You, you keep reading in the book of, or in chapter 17 in particular, and, and you know, in the next scene, he ends up in Athens preaching Jesus to a bunch of pagan philosophers who don't know the Bible at all, and, and, and he does so using some of their categories and even quoting some of their own poets. But there's a huge difference between using the categories or literature of a culture to illustrate who Jesus is versus appealing to those categories or literature as the basis of the message you're preaching. That's not what Paul was doing. What he preached to the philosophers in Athens was thoroughly biblical. Now, he didn't feel the need to, to cite chapter and verse uh, in his first conversation because these guys didn't know what the scriptures were, but he could have if he needed to. Everything he was preaching to them was anchored in Israel's scriptures. In fact, it must be because for Paul, the Bible has authority over the church and over all people, whether or not they recognize it. Paul's pattern of preaching Jesus from the Old Testament was not a mere communication strategy. It was a fundamental commitment to the authority of Scripture, not just for the Jews, but for all nations. And so his pattern of preaching everywhere he went was not only to talk about Jesus, but to reason, to explain and prove from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And, and you can see that as you keep reading the book of Acts. Everywhere he goes, this is what he does. You know, for instance, uh, when he testifies before King Agrippa in Acts 26, he says this, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying, Nothing but what the prophets and Moses, that's the Old Testament, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. What he preaches about Christ comes from God's word. And, and you see the same thing even in the letters that, that Paul writes. So not just his preaching ministry when he goes into synagogues, but in the letters he writes to different churches, uh, several of which were not predominantly Jewish. So you take Galatians, for instance. You know, the, the Galatian church was largely a Gentile church. They weren't made up of, of Jewish background believers. And yet, as Paul explains the gospel to them, he quotes Israel's scriptures 11 times to make his point. He's anchoring his message in the scriptures. He does the same thing in Ephesians. And, and, and so it's not surprising when at the end of his life, and we'll look at this next week, actually, this passage in 2 Timothy, at the end of his life, when he's getting ready to, to go the way of all the earth, and he is 
equipping and imparting Timothy to shepherd the flock of God, his chief instruction for how to guard the health and life and faith of the church is to preach the word. That's where they had to go. The, the word of God, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The word of God, the Bible, has authority over God's people. Paul recognized the only authority his gospel had was contingent on his faithfulness to Scripture. So if you could show Paul that what he was preaching didn't line up with this book, he would have corrected or rejected what he was saying. He would have. The reason his gospel was true is not just because he received it as a as a revelation from God, as he describes in Galatians, but because the revelation he received is in accordance with the scriptures. God isn't just starting over with Jesus. He's fulfilling his word, and, and he has anchored his authority in his revealed word. The Bible has authority over us because God has authority over us. And in the Bible, God is speaking. Now, Paul was not the only one in our story who recognized the supreme authority of Scripture. And, and here's where the, the contrast, we saw lots of similarities, here's where the contrast sticks out in, in, in terms of the, different, the difference between his experience in Thessalonica and his experience in Berea, the noble listeners who examine the Scriptures. So, so Luke shows us how in both cities, people were persuaded by Paul and trusted in Christ. They, they put their faith in Christ. But, but he draws a contrast between the general disposition of the Jews in each city. So in, in Thessalonica, in verses 1 to 9, there the Jews became jealous of Paul and his message, in verse 5, uh, to the point that they actually went and hired a bunch of no-goods to go start a riot so that they could blame the riot on Paul and make him look bad. And then when they couldn't find Paul to put him in prison, they arrested the people he was with who then had to be bailed out of jail. But notice what they never once did. They never actually engaged with Paul's message. They never sought to hear him out in any way. They, they simply tried to get rid of him. I mean, they weren't really concerned about Caesar and his rule. Most Jews in the first century would have been more than happy to get rid of Rome and Caesar. They were jealous of Paul. They didn't want people to follow Paul or to believe his message about Jesus because, frankly, they wanted to be in charge. And so their goal was not to engage in a thoughtful dialogue. Their goal was to get rid of him, to silence the opposition, to suppress the dissent, and if necessary, to use force doing so. That's what he encountered in Thessalonica. Now, contrast that to his experience in Berea, the next city he moves on to, verses 10 to 15. Paul does the exact same thing there. He goes to the synagogue. He preaches Jesus from the Old Testament. But verse 11 tells us this. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. 
they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So, so Luke describes the Jews in that city as more noble. And, and that word, that phrase of, of nobility, that usually in scripture refers to somebody's like birth or, or, or heritage. But here he applies it to their character and to their disposition toward God and his word. Their nobility is shown not in their family line or their social pedigree, but in, in their, their heart toward God and his word. They were humble enough to consider a new idea. They were secure enough to investigate it seriously, and they were committed to God enough to measure all ideas against the standard of his word. They recognized that the Bible was authoritative and so that they could actually engage the idea and compare it to the scriptures. And if they were going to believe a message about Israel's king, they had to see it for themselves in here. They were willing to interact with Paul's teaching, but they didn't just take it at face value. They examined the scriptures daily to see if what he was saying was true. And it was Frankly, it was only after the Jews from Thessalonica showed up into Berea that things went south there as well, and Paul had to move on. And the point here is this. Even Paul, even Paul, as an apostle of Jesus, was not to be believed unless his message was in line with God's authoritative word. Think about that. He couldn't just show up saying anything he wanted. It had to be in accordance with the scriptures. The Bereans were commended for testing Paul's teaching against the word. They weren't criticized like, oh, they're so suspicious. No, they, that was a good thing that they were doing, looking at the scriptures to see if what he said was true. And the test is whether Paul's words lined up with God's words. That was the test. The Bible has authority over God's church not the other way around. And, and when we stop and think about that, the authority of Scripture in the church, that has all sorts of implications for us today, and really in every age, right? Implications for the life and, and teaching and doctrine and mission of the church. And, and I just I want to think about a few of those implications, that, that if this book is an authoritative word, what difference does that make for us as followers of Christ? The first implication is, is it means that we must always submit our traditions and doctrines to the standard of Scripture. We must always do that and always be willing to reform them if we are shown that the Bible, in fact, teaches something else, right? As a church, this is super important. As a church, we don't get to pick what our beliefs are. We receive them from the Lord. Nor do we get to change them whenever they become uncomfortable or unfashionable, whenever they put us at odds with the world around us. We must draw them from Scripture and measure them by Scripture, both in our, in our personal lives and as a church, as a church body. Uh, so, for instance, that means that 
the ultimate measure of, of how we operate as a church. Things like our, our leadership structure or our worship service or the, you know, our, our teaching and, and, and preaching, our, our ministry strategies, our discipleship methods, all of those kinds of things. The ultimate measure of those things is not what the so-called experts say is most effective today. Uh, or what the world says is acceptable today, or even what I personally prefer. Now, the ultimate measure is what God says in his word. That's where we must go to, to draw them and to, to measure them. And there can be a lot of flexibility on some of those things, like a discipleship strategy. There's not one, only one way to make disciples. You have to do this first, then this first. Or there, there's not only one way to organize a worship service or to teach the Bible, right? You know, one-hour sermons, and if you don't do that, you know, you're not really teaching the Word. We, we don't want to make the mistake of reducing a biblical principle to a single practice, right? The question is, is what we do, does it come from the Bible, and does it operate in accordance with the Bible? That's the question. And if it doesn't, we probably need to rethink it, right? This is our authoritative word. And, and this, this conviction is what the reformers, the Protestant reformers expressed with the words sola scriptura, which is a Latin phrase that means scripture alone. The, the, that scripture alone has supreme authority in the church, which doesn't mean that the Bible is the only expression of authority. Sometimes it's misunderstood or misapplied uh, to say that. Every local church has other kinds of authority structures, statements of faith and, 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 and leadership and so on. And, and that's not a problem so long as all of that is subjected to the ultimate authority of Scripture. The Bible gets the last word in all matters of life and doctrine and mission. And, and you can see what's at stake with that. When you, when you look at the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, so they, they confused, the Pharisees in particular, they confused their interpretation with God's revelation. They, they allowed their particular understanding and application of, of the Old Testament law to become more authoritative than the law itself. They, they put their tradition over God's word. For instance, Matthew 15, the Pharisees chastised, they rebuke Jesus because his followers don't, quote, hold to the tradition of the elders, which was their phrase for their official interpretation of God's law. Well, Jesus' reply to them puts them in their place. Matthew 15, 3, he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That's scripture. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me, your you know, financial assistance uh, is, is uh, given to God, he need not honor his father or mother. If you, you make your payment to the church instead, you're off the hook caring for mom and dad. So for the sake of your tradition... You have made void the word of God. Jesus rebukes them for, for replacing God's word with their tradition, such that he says in verse 7, you hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Pharisees confused their interpretation with God's revelation, their tradition with God's word. And when we place our traditions and applications or interpretations above the scriptures, when we make our version the standard for all truth, according to Jesus, we actually make void the word of God. We empty it of its power because we've replaced it with our word instead. And the only power or authority our word can ever have is the extent to which it's faithful to this word, to God's word in the scriptures. The Bible has authority over God's people, not the other way around. So, so that's the first implication, testing, subjecting all things to scripture. Second implication of the Bible's authority is what we might call the clarity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the fact that the Bible is sufficiently clear such that every Christian's called to read and to study it. Again, you think of, of the Bereans. They were commended for going to the Scriptures. They weren't corrected or chastised. What they did, going to the Bible for themselves, was a good thing. And, and of course, you know, if you spent any time in this book, you know there's some hard stuff in there. There's some things that are difficult to understand. But, but because of the Bible is revelation, God's making himself known, and because he gives the spirit of God to his children, the overall message of scripture is sufficiently clear for God's people, such that everyone is invited to read and study and apply and obey this word. To put it another way, um, the Bible's not just for the so-called experts, right? Sometimes we think that, I, I, I don't know what to do with this book. It's not just for the so-called experts, you know, people who took a class on it or, or hold a particular office in the church. The Bible is for everyone. It's for all God's children to read it, to know him. God is not hiding himself in his word. He is revealing himself in his word. And it is sufficiently clear. And that was another significant departure uh, between Rome and the, the reformers during the Reformation. So prior to the Reformation, the kinds of Bible studies that are common at a, at a church like Stonebridge and even some Catholic churches today, those, those Bible studies were actually illegal before the Protestant Reformation. You weren't allowed to read or study God's word. In fact, the first people who tried to translate it into the common language, because up to that point, they really only operated in Latin, which a lot of the priests didn't even understand. The first people who tried to translate it actually got themselves killed for their trouble. Like it was scandalous for anybody to read this book. How, what if they disagree? What if... What if what if they disagree on what it says? How do you decide who's right? How do you maintain control? Which is, of course, the problem. They forgot that God's the one who's in control, right? They rightly, the church leadership rightly recognized that part of shepherding God's people is guarding them from false teaching. They wrongly assumed 
that they wouldn't do any false teaching themselves and that they didn't need the people of God to actually check and see if what they taught was true. To, help, to hold them accountable and correct them when they strayed from God's word. Which is one of the reasons, uh, by the way, that every time I start a sermon, I always ask you to keep your Bibles open. Probably gets boring and, and you know, predictable. But there's a reason I say it every single week. Because this book is our authority, not what comes out of my mouth, right? And even though we, we put verses on the screen sometimes, it's still better to have this book open on your lap. And the screen's helpful, especially if you're new to the Bible and still figuring out how to find your way around it. But there's, there's something about having this book open on your lap to be able to see where it's coming from, to see the context it's located in, to be able to not just take my word for it, but see it for yourself in the scriptures, to examine them to see if what I or any of the pastors say is actually true, and to hold us to account if ever we stray. The only authority I have as a preacher of God's word is the extent to which I'm faithful to this book. So we must always submit our teaching to the authority of Scripture, and, and the Scripture is sufficiently clear that we should all read it and study it. One final implication, if this is an authoritative word, then reading and understanding it is not quite enough. We need to obey it. We need to put it into practice. If this book has authority over our lives, we need to obey it. To obey God is to obey Scripture. And to disregard or, or disobey Scripture is to disregard or disobey God. And, and this might be the hardest part of the whole conversation for some of us. The idea that, that when, when it comes down to the rubber meeting the road of the Bible's authority, that means I'm not actually the one in control. I'm not the one calling the shots. For some of us, our problem isn't you know, the Bible's authority, it's just authority. That, that's, that's the hard thing for us. Authority feels like a power play. Authority can be easily abused. Authority means that I have to answer to somebody else. And, and honestly, today, there's almost no more offensive idea that, that somebody other than me would have authority in my life. You know, we might not have any problem recognizing that this is an inspired word or that it's a reliable word, but authoritative, that means I actually answer to somebody else, that I might actually have to change. And that, that's the hard part for some of us. And, and to be honest, some of us may have genuinely, have been genuinely wounded by the abuse or misuse of authority, such that we've got honest reasons when we wince at that word. But when we transfer our cynicism or our fear or, or our self-protectiveness to God and his authority, whatever abuse or misuse we've experienced, when we transfer that skepticism to God and his authority, we, we risk falling into, into two different traps. First is the belief that we're self-sufficient, that we don't actually need God or his word in order to live life the way it was meant to li be lived. 
I, I've got this. I don't need him. That's, that's one of the traps. The second trap goes all the way back to the beginning. The, the lie that God is not good. You think of what, what moved Eve and Adam to eat from that tree, that the idea that God was withholding something from them that was otherwise good. The only reason God would give a word is if he wants to keep something from me. That was the lie in the garden. To dismiss or resist God's authority expressed in his word is to think too highly of ourselves and too lowly of God. Moreover, it's, it's to risk misunderstanding both freedom and love. Freedom and love. If, if we define freedom, if we think that freedom means being free to do whatever I want to do, and love means you letting me do whatever I want to do, the Bible is going to feel like a prison, right? It's going to feel like something that has to be thrown off in order to be free and, and to be loved. But if freedom is the freedom to do what is right and good, freedom from sin, and if love is wanting what's best for someone, what's going to give life instead of take life away, there is nothing more freeing and more loving than surrendering ourselves to God and walking in the light of his word. Amen. Jesus says in John's gospel, chapter 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If that's what you're longing for, if that's your hang-up to coming under God's word, know that, that the freedom and love you're longing for, that's where it's found, surrendering to Christ and to his word. And every word in this book, every command, every promise, every doctrine, every story is given to you out of love. It is given in love that we might know God, that we might treasure Christ, that we might truly live. The Bible is our supreme authority because it is the very word of God. We don't correct the scriptures. The scriptures correct us and they guide us and they form us and they nourish us that we might know God, that we might love God, that we might know his love and truly bring him the honor he deserves. And so my prayer is that we'd be like those noble Bereans, eager to dig into the scriptures, to examine them so that everything would be brought under the supreme authority of God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we praise you that you have not concealed yourself, but that you have revealed yourself to us. Ultimately, in your Son, and sufficiently and clearly and authoritatively in your written word. Lord, give us eyes to see you in your scriptures. Give us hearts, Lord, that are eager to listen to your voice in the word. And not just to listen, but to, but to follow you. Lord, change us by your spirit as we submit ourselves, as we drink in 
the depths of your scripture. Give us guidance, give us joy to know that every, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.